Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Vic, if you look at his politics from the time he was first elected until he left office, his politics didn't change at all, but the Republican Party changed around him. And certainly was, as we get into talking about Vic, Vic and Tom had a love-hate relationship. Vic's 100th birthday is Monday, the 20th. Tom McCall and Vic Atia first met in 1958. They had a talk and Tom McCall said, you know, Audrey wonders why I'm even traveling with you, my worst enemy. Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right, Jim Moore, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Really appreciate you making time to chat with us. As we've mentioned to you, we're excited to talk about Vicatia. We've talked about Tom McCall on this podcast. Vicatia is a logical next stop in the gubernatorial train. But before we do that, for the listeners, most of them have probably read or heard a quote from you. But what is your day job? What is the Tom McCall Center and what do you do for them? Sure, sure. So I am a politics professor at Pacific University actually kind of on temporary leave from that as an administrator right now. So I'm the director of the School of Social Sciences. But part of that is I am the director of political outreach for the Tom McCall Center for Civic Engagement. And people may remember there was a Tom McCall forum that came out of Pacific that went for 25 years. It brought people here to debate Dan Quayle took on people and <laughs> and Mario Cuomo was here and wow. you know, all those kinds of things. And that eventually became financially untenable. And so that turned into the McCall Center. And the basic idea with the McCall Center is we want to get our students to get out in the world. And so civic engagement is a, is a lot of stuff. I do the political stuff. So I'm getting the political world to come to the students, but more often to get the students out into the political world. That's internships. I teach a class where everybody's got to work for a political campaign. It's cool. making connections with students and, you know, people who are out there. So it's really fun. And it kind of hits something that's important to me. And it was important to Vicatia as well, of getting people in your learning out of the books and into the real world. That's where the messy stuff takes place. And that's where the real stuff takes place. So real quick follow-up before we talk about the book briefly, why is it the Tom McCall Center and not the Victoria yeah. Center? Well, exactly. And the dean at the time I started the book asked that very question. Because <laughs> <laughs> our Tom McCall Center stuff that say, Oregon's most famous politician. You said, but won't Vicatia be the most famous politician? <laughs> well, 
even when the book gets out, no, I think Tom McCall is going to be the most famous politician. Tom McCall, because the person who founded it, a a political science professor at Pacific named Russ Dondero, reached out to the McCall family. And Audrey McCall, Tom's Mm -hmm. widow, said, yes, you can use Tom's name. This is something he would appreciate and support getting people from both sides to come and debate and bat ideas around. And then when it became the Civic Engagement Center, the McCall name came with it. We have Tom McCall Fellows. People can apply to be one. And there's a quote from one of his inaugural addresses, and they have to write an essay. So he's still the the thing against which all governors are measured. Mm -hmm. And certainly as as we get into talking about Vic, Vic and Tom had a love-hate relationship. But Vic was be the first to acknowledge, yeah, he was the flashy guy that people are going to know. I was the quiet guy that people didn't know. Why don't we write a book and make that change? But yeah, so so that's why it's the McCall Center. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's pretty fascinating. So we're going to transition to Atia now specifically. Why did you decide to write a book about him? You haven't written a book about McCall, have you? I have not. There is a book about McCall. You have talked to Brett Walt. His is the standard by which all books about governors are judged. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So there you go. So um, you decided I'm not going to try all the biographies about governors that have ever been written. So, so you you were like, I'm not going to try and do what's already been done. I'm going to do something different and write a book about Atia. Yeah, it was partly that, but partly Vic himself asked. Oh, oh um, really? There had been an attempt to write a biography of Atia that started in the late 1990s. And by about 10 years ago, it was apparent that it wasn't going anywhere. Hmm. And as we're talking, Vic's 100th birthday is Monday, the 20th of February. And so this was as he was approaching his 90th birthday. In about his mid 80s, 85, 86-ish, he decided to donate his papers to Pacific University. And that's kind of an interesting choice because he went to U of O. He didn't graduate, but he went to U of O. He was a fraternity brother at U of O. He loved the Green Bay Packers and U of O. They have the same colors. <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was a U of O guy, and yet he decided to give his papers to Pacific. Hmm. And so that meant a couple of things. He had a whole bunch of stuff at home still. But also, we moved a lot of things from the Oregon Historical Society from their archive to Pacific's archive. And as that was going on, he began to think, you know, maybe somebody else should be writing the book that's not happening. Hmm. And I was deeply involved in in him. When we would go to pick up papers, the archivists would go and they would take me because I know Oregon politics. And I'd ask him questions about what we were seeing. And because of that, and because of my public life as a political analyst, he eventually asked me to write the book. And when, awesome. when did he ask you to write the book? He asked me that he in, passed in 2014. Yeah, so he passed in, in July of 2014. He asked me in October of 2013. Oh, wow. So That's I was cool. able to interview him four times before he died. The last time was about three weeks before he died. I was going off for a big, long trip. You know, I'll talk to you in a fifth interview when we come back. He was about ready to celebrate his his anniversary, the 70th anniversary. And on his 70th anniversary, that's when he fell. Mm. I got back, found out he was ill, and then he died just a few days later. Well, what a great honor to have 
Vic want you to write the book. Yeah. You mentioned his fraternity days. He was actually a member of the fraternity that I was a member of when I was at U of O. And that's how I met him. I met him in 2013 and we got coffee a couple times and like he stayed super involved and engaged oh, till yeah. the very end in like, you know, he'd show up at like the dinners and things and not make a big fuss about it just to support the young generation, which was really cool. Partially why I've become a little bit obsessed with him since then. And Dan Levy, another fraternity brother, would drive him down from Portland down to that's, the fraternity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so so let's get into the life of Vicatia. Let's start, and I know there's some like war story starting points in U of O that may be worth telling, but I'm kind of interested in his terms in the legislature. Yeah. So he's, he served in the legislature for, I think, 20 years before- 20 years, he elected in 58, becomes governor in 79. So 20 years there. And House and Senate, like a, I think a short stint in the House and then mostly in the yeah. Senate- and I believe he was in the minority the entire 20 years. The entire 20 years he was in the minority. And by the time we get to the last few years in the Senate, we're talking real minority, like there are six Republicans in the 30-member Senate. So they were called actually the phone booth caucus because <laughs> a Klamath Falls newspaper person said, hey, you could all fit in the phone booth. If you know the second floor of the Capitol, there's phone booths that are still there. They no longer have phones. And so there's a picture of all of the members of the caucus <laughs> jammed in there. It's like, see, oh, well, there they are, do, 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 all six of them. See, Reagan's over here been complaining about being in minority status. He has no <laughs> idea. He has no idea. So when Atia is a Republican in the minority and an extreme minority, what's he like? What's his reputation? Is he getting things done or is he kind of like, is he, you know, casting aspersions at the Democrats? Like, how is he operating in that space? Well, he, he, it's divided into two because he becomes the Senate minority leader in 1971. So before that, he is publicly very much, I'm in the minority, but we're going to get things done. Mm -hmm. And so he was known, he was always on the finance committee. So he wanted, he was deeply involved in taxes, all that kind of stuff. Many opportunities to be on ways and means to actually spend money. But he always wanted to say on the tax side. Hmm. And he was known as the only person on the task committees in the House and then in the Senate who actually read the entire bills. He knew that he was going to lose in the big sense because the Democrats were the majority. But he would go there. He would sit down with the new bill. And I don't know if they still do it the same way, but the drafts of the bills would be printed out. He would open it like a book, take a pen knife and slit it right down the spine so that it was flat. And he'd look around and he was clearly the most experienced person in the room. And he'd say, okay, let's make this the best bill that we can. And so that's what he thought his job was to make things, even though he's in the minority, the best it could be given a democratic majority. And so he, he built a real bipartisan reputation that began to change once again when he became the minority leader, because all of a sudden he's got to stand up and say, hey, we're Republicans. We're against X, Y, and Z from the Democrats. But even then, as, as minority leader, because his minority kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller, <laughs> he realized the working committees was the key thing that had to happen. And that's where he really showed. So while he is minority leader, I think, is McCall governor for that entire tenure? Yeah. So he becomes minority leader in 71. McCall is there until 74. 
then Democrat Bob Straub defeats Vic in the 1974 election. And so Democrat Bob Straub is there and Vic continues to be minority leader until he wins the governorship four years so- ago. Obviously, McCall and Atia have a complicated relationship with one another. I think it probably starts to get really complicated when they run against each other in the primary <laughs> yes. for governor. But before yeah. that, when, when he's minority leader, do they have a good working relationship or is Atia too conservative for McCall? Or like, how does that how does that sort out? Well, it's it's I, I, we need to go back earlier than that. Okay. Tom McCall and Vic Atia first met in 1958. Okay. Vicatia is running for office in the House. He goes to a candidate forum at his local elementary school. And this guy from KGW TV, <laughs> Lawson McCall, is the moderator who happens to live just over the hill. And after that, Vic wins election. But during the from 1958 until the early 1960s, McCall actually was a guest at the Atia house. He'd come over and have dinner with Vic and the family. No kidding. Because he wanted to pick Vic's mind about politics. Remember, McCall, I don't know if you got into this last week, but McCall had run for Congress, mm-hmm. had been beaten. Then he's thinking about things. So by the time we get to the early 60s, there's going to be an open s- slot for the Secretary of State. And if you look at coverage at the time, Vic and McCall are both people who are on a list of like eight names that might run for this Secretary of State mm. seat. So up until that happened, Tom is a guest in Vic's house picking Vic's brain. Not often, but it happens. Mm-hmm. It happens. So then they re-meet when McCall goes into office, becomes governor. McCall, by the time we get to his second term, had discovered that his natural alliance was with the Democrats on so many things, not the Republicans. And that's on taxes, that's on the environmental stuff, it's on a a whole bunch of things. Vic was sometimes with McCall, but sometimes against him. Hmm. And most notably, whenever McCall would propose, and he proposed two big tax reforms, Vic opposed him. Hmm. And so there was a remarkable trip back to Washington, D.C. in the early 70s. Both of them were there to talk about the new Oregon land use laws. And during the time at the hotel, they they traveled back there together. They had a talk and Tom McCall said, you know, Audrey wonders why I'm even traveling with you, my worst enemy. (laughs) Mm. And yet, as Vic noted, when there were times when McCall wanted to debate somebody about a new tax plan or something, he always wanted to have Vic there because Vic's reputation is we've got to do this right. He knew Vic would be honest in his opposition. And so people would get a real good sense about what the pros and cons were of these of these things. So it was a very interesting relationship. And then when, when McCall dies, which is just after Vic becomes governor for the second term, one of the first calls Audrey made was to Vic. But when you're governor, you never get to drive anywhere. You have a driver. You've got, you know, security. Vic just hopped in the car and drove up mm. and was at the McCall house within 45 minutes. Wow. Vic drove really fast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a, a fascinating relationship. 
Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any more details that you can share about the 1978 primary? It's Governor Tom yeah. McCall, House Speaker Roger Martin, and and Vicatia. What was that primary like? Yeah, so it was, it was clear that Atia was going to get in again because he had been the standard bearer in 74. It was clear that Martin was going to get in with his hot young guy who was running his press, a guy named Greg Walden, <laughs> who was like 22 or 21 at the time. Friend of the podcast, Greg Walden. Exactly. And it looked like McCall was going to get in, but we couldn't tell because Tom McCall was being Tom McCall. Yes. Dup, 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 dup. McCall declared right about this time of year. He declared basically on the February 13th, the day before Oregon's birthday. And McCall's team, his all of his all of his confidants, according to Brent Walsh's book, were like, Tom, don't run. Like you should not run again. Exactly. Like, and yeah. when he got in, they did not help him. So his campaign manager was someone who had actually been Vic's student intern in 1967. A young Phil Keesling was on the, <laughs> wow. the, the McCall team. So it was, it was, he got in late and none of the old guard came and helped out. And so as they were going along, McCall clearly had the name recognition and everything else. Roger Martin's in third place, but gaining. Vic is really well known, but people have a negative image of him. But as we go along, McCall, because he was McCall, said, we have to debate. And Roger Martin knew that the only chance he had was to basically do really well in these debates. And so as the Vic people put it, Roger would go after McCall and McCall would jump to the bait and they would go at each other and go at each other. And as they put it, Vic would just stand in the corner holding Roger's coat. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's driving down McCall's numbers. It's driving down McCall's numbers. There was a crucial poll just a couple of weeks before the election. And this is in the days before the 24-hour news cycle. So the McCall people are at the Oregonian printing press waiting for them to put the day's paper in that little box until you can put your quarter in and buy the paper. And the poll showed that McCall's lead was shrinking and Vic was gaining. And Vic looked at it and he was really experienced in elections. And he said, I'm going to win. And it's clear talking to McCall's campaign manager, they knew they were going to lose at that moment as well. And that's what happened. So in that primary, so in today's primaries, like it's it's obviously more complicated than what I'm about to describe, but a lot of the question is about like how conservative someone is right. in a Republican primary. Like, are you an ultra conservative? Are you a moderate Republican? And like that can usually like usually the battle is to like be the most conservative. I imagine yeah. there was a different framework in 1978, although I'm not. 100% sure. Like my perception is Atia was perceived as the most conservative and like the Republican base was starting to turn on McCall because of his perception as a conservationist. How do you understand the Republican Party dynamics of the time? Yeah. So actually Roger Martin was considered the most conservative, which okay. was a godsend for Vic. Vic, if you look at his politics from the time he was first elected until he left office, his politics didn't change at all, but the Republican Party changed around him. Okay. He did. It wasn't quite the case. You may recall or or have heard when Mark Hatfield retired in 1996, he said, you know, if I were to run for, as a first time candidate now, I don't think I would win a Republican primary. And Vic was watching that happen. Mm -hmm. So here's what was happening in 1978. The timber barons were not giving their money to Vic. Hmm because they wanted to hold out to support whoever, and they thought it would be Straub, 
whoever was going to take on Tom McCall to defeat Tom McCall in the general election. The Timber Barons would have given to Straub to beat McCall. And Straub, who was a Democrat, but also he was a woodland owner who was a business person who knew the timber industry like it was going out of style. Interesting, but also a conservationist, right? Like he's not also a, a conservationist. Exactly. And to a certain extent, not certain, to a big extent, more of a conservationist than McCall was. And Straub, he was frustrated. He was really frustrated. But Vic was frustrated too. I talked to the people who were his drivers, uh-huh. you know, driving him hither, thither, and yon. And one of them was his nephew. And they would pull into a place where before in 74, Vic had gotten a big check, no big checks. Because we're holding on to our money because McCall's going to be the nominee and we've got to make sure that McCall doesn't win. Mm. So that that's beginning to happen. Vic was referred to in the media as a conservative. When that first happened in 74, which is the first time when he ran for governor, first time he'd been referred to as a conservative, he thought, oh, my gosh, that's a blow. <laughs> and 74 is also that's the Watergate year. Mm-hmm. So we got Nixon resigning and all this kind of stuff. And it's a blow. By the time we get to 78, Vic is seen as a little bit more moderate because Roger Martin is there. Mm-hmm. And clearly of all the major candidates, McCall is the most liberal, even on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. So it's just a it's a, a dynamic that you just wouldn't ever expect. In at the presidential level, I was just looking this up to confirm my knowledge was correct. You had Reagan almost beat Ford in 76, come close. And so that new hard charging, a little bit more conservative wing of the party was really bubbling up at that time. And so 78 was a Republican year. Dems, I think, held on to Congress, if I remember, for Carter. But Republicans were picking up seats in that year, too. And so that was helping push Atia at the general election level and probably some in the primary a little bit. Yeah, so here's a a little story from that 78 campaign. Mm -hmm. They got a check from Ronald Reagan's campaign arm. Mm. And his campaign manager, Vicatia's campaign manager said, should we cash this because that (laughs) will label us as conservative? And Vic said, oh, don't worry about it. And he called up his good friend, Jerry Ford, and said, Jerry, could your foundation give us money? So they got money from both. Mm, smart. When Vic became governor and then Reagan becomes president in 81, Atiyah couldn't get a hearing in the White House <laughs> because of that incident. Oh. And the only way they got in there was, it turns out, Vic's second favorite president after Jerry Ford was George Herbert Walker Bush, who was vice president. <laughs> and so Bush becomes the entree into the White House and that kind of level because the Reagan people weren't going to have anything to do with it because he had, in effect, for them, betrayed him because he didn't immediately take the money. Well, for the record, I agree with Vicatia that the label of conservative is a blow and really negative. So <laughs> I'm just kidding, Reagan. Look, I was just thinking, Ben, that Vicatia must be the most successful minority leader ever because he made that minority as small as humanly possible. <laughs> okay, so in seriousness, I am. You've alluded to this in a, on a couple of different ways, but I'm curious your explanation of why. It's the same candidates in the general election in 74 and 78. Atiyah loses in 74 and wins in 78. What's the explanation for how that happens? Explanation number one, Bob Straub did not have a successful governorship. Okay. 
And some people attribute it to his choice of, for instance, the chiefs of staff and things like that, kind of insiders looked at his chief of staff and said, oh, this isn't going to work out well. And mm. it didn't. Other people look at Straub, who was a, he was a self-effacing person. He wouldn't step forward and take credit. Okay. There were also beginnings of recessions that were going on, and you always kind of blame the incumbent. And then Vicatia did something that is so rare. He ran and lost. And then he said to himself, I know the people of Oregon. I like the people of Oregon. I think I'm going to try it again because I know how to do this better. So he put together a better campaign, but he also, he had a list of thousands of people who'd volunteered for him in 74, and they were all incredibly happy to do it again. Hmm. 78, there was a reporter who heard about this list, and he said, I don't believe the list. They invited him in, and they showed, they just had boxes filled with three by five cards. And the reporter said, can I just take some of these and check them out? And they said, sure. And he pulled out about 20 of them. He went and he called every one of them, and the information on the card was accurate. Yes, they were strong VIX supporters. Yes, they were going to do whatever was marked down. I'll put up a sign. I'm going to organize three people. I'm going to do all that. And the reporter didn't ever use it in his story, but he said, I'm convinced. Hmm. You're really talking to people all across the state. It's very similar to like Richardson, who runs once runs, you know, an okay campaign, but not a really expensive campaign against Kitzhopper. But I think I've always thought that the one of the reasons he won Secretary of State is he kind of, you know, he was pointing at Kitzhopper and saying there's some issues here. And then, you know, he, the voters say, oh, you know what, maybe he was right, in a sense, and they give him another shot at it. And he also gets lucky on his opponent and some st- other stuff like that. But yeah, and like Bob Straw, Brad Avakian was somebody who never really explained what I would do differently. Mm-hmm. And Richardson was able to to, in effect, say, here I am. If you remember his, he he was up here in Portland for that summer. So all these ads are of him on a motorcycle in his leathers driving around Portland. Hi, <laughs> I'm young and alive. <laughs> I loved it. All right. So what would you say from Vicatia's career, governorship or legislature, what was his most important achievements? Maybe one or or two. Most important achievement is the uh, Silicon Forest. Mm-hmm. It was wow. here already. Tektronics had been around really since the early 60s, 1950s, in the form that we know it. Intel had already come in, but Vicatia is hit with the worst recession Oregon has ever had. You can argue that it's even worse than the steep COVID dip that we took because it lasted a lot longer. And Vic's response after it was horrible, banks were closing Half the people in Coos Bay were put out of work over weekends because timber places were shutting down. But Vic looked up and said, I've got to help change Oregon's economy. And what he did is he became Trader Vic, and he went and started recruiting businesses, especially Japan, but also Taiwan, Korea, and getting them to come here and invest in building high-tech factories getting that going. And so he's the one who took a couple of companies and turned it into the forest that we know. And so that's his his biggest achievement. It's fascinating because in my observations, that's what also turned Washington County Democratic. Mm -hmm. It brought in very different people. And so talking with Vic's uh, former chief of staff, who's become a very good friend, she just says, you know, I just wonder what Vic's doing up there in heaven, because I think you're exactly right. 
his Republican policies made Washington County Democratic, his hometown. There you go. Um, so, but I think that's his number one legacy. So I, I met this gentleman for coffee a couple of weeks ago who was, and then I was reading your little write-up on the Oregon Encyclopedia about Vicatia, and he had mentioned the unitary tax and the repeal of the unitary tax, which I don't fully understand, but basically it's like a tax on sales outside of Oregon. Is that yeah. basically the way to understand it? Okay. So Vic apparently was involved in designing that tax as a legislator and right. then central to the repeal of that tax as governor. Right. Can you explain why that was a critical part of this story? Sure. It's a critical part. We don't have to get into the tax itself, but basically it's do you tax an international corporation on its global footprint or its Oregon footprint? That's mm -hmm. basically it. And the reason that Vic was so instrumental in repealing it is, A, he called the special session of the legislature to do just that. But he was hearing, especially from Japanese companies, we will not invest in Oregon because of the unitary tax. Hmm. It's been going on for a while. And so they made the plan, and I've got it pegged down to the actual weekend, Memorial Day weekend, after meeting with the head of Sony and all this stuff, the drive back. Jerry Thompson, his chief of staff, is in the car, says, Vic, we really have to, to repeal this unitary tax. And Vic said, I, we can't do that. We just can't do that. Hmm. And then the next morning, he slept on it, and he said, okay, we got to do it. So what do we need to do to make that happen? And it became a big deal because the tax itself was minuscule, but symbolically, it was Oregon opening the door to the international community. And it's part of a national conversation. Should there be a national unitary tax? What states had it and didn't have it? And big Japanese corporations were going to states that didn't have it, and they were saying, we're opening up a plant here. And it was clear that Oregon needed to get on, in on that. Other states repealed it that same year, but we were first. And because of that, we were the most famous. So Vic was the first Oregon governor, first governor of any kind to go to Japan and speak to their most powerful industrial organization because he was the hero in Japan who had slain the unitary tax. And that opened the door to all sorts of companies coming here. So I'm going to call an audible here because that makes me, I'm curious your take on this question. So Governor Tina Kotek in her um, inaugural address references Vicatia yeah. and talks talks about how she is the first lesbian governor of Oregon. He was the first governor of Arab descent. There's this seems like a pretty obvious, at least similarities between what he was trying to do at the time in the early Silicon Forest era mm -hmm. and what Governor Kotek is trying to do now with this semiconductor issue with the National Chips Act. What are the similarities and differences in your mind between what was happening then and what is happening now in the leaders in the chairs? So similarities between the leaders. They both know the legislature like they're going out of style. And just like Vic, Tina Kotek, especially because she's been speaker, and you've seen this in her activities just you know, with the OLCC just in th this week. She knows who runs the agencies. She knows who runs the departments. She's got opinions about them. She didn't just change things. Vic came in. He's a Republican succeeding a Democrat. He basically asked for about as many resignations as Tina did, and he made changes at about the rate Tina does, which is not many. Yeah. Not many changes because he knew them. He knew who was good, who he didn't want to work with that kind of stuff. So that's a similarity. 
Other similarity, yeah, the, the focus on, on high tech. Now with Vic, that came after the recessions hit. He doesn't really start becoming triggered Vic until after his second election. He's thinking about it before then, but it's not until 1983 that he really starts hitting the road and, and spending a lot of time overseas. But the seeing that there's got to be a replacement. But Vic is, is living with a different world. He's living with a world where the timber industry was dominant just last year. Tina Kotex living in a world where, especially in Oregon, away from Portland, the timber industry has now been gone for 40 plus years. That's right. And people are still saying we have to bring the timber industry back. It's like, it would have appeared by now, I think. And so so she's she's de de dealing with a different set of assumptions about what government can do. Partisanship is different, all those kinds of things. I have one question. I mean, I've got a couple, but I think for what our time purposes, the most interesting might be a really important event or series of events that happened in his governorship that I actually don't know a lot about how he responded to which is the Rajneeshis, uh, <laughs> which is a, a fascinating little tale in Oregon history. They've made a Netflix documentary series about this. It was like international news at the time, and I think not well remembered by a lot of particularly younger folks today. Can you explain what a, a brief summary of what happened and then particularly what was Vicatia's role in the controversy? Sure. So fall of 1981, the Rajneeshis show up. They're a group from India that pretty much has been pushed out of India due to a variety of reasons. They come to New Jersey. They want to find a new place for them to be. They end up in eastern Oregon on a ranch. When the Bhagwan, who was the head of this group, who was in a period of silence for the first several years they were here, when he first saw it, he apparently thought to himself, what on earth? This is not what I was expecting, which is a lot of sagebrush, some mesas, and it was the big muddy ranch. It was, it was a muddy creek. But they began to build their center. There were already centers of this particular group around the world. He ran a series of coffee and tea shops. And they're still around there. If you're ever someplace like in Denmark and you see an Osho coffee place, that's still the same group. They're mm -hmm. still there. So what is this to Vic? Vic is governor at the time. This is what I think this is going to be the most important part of my book. People have no idea what Vic did. At the time, the, the face of Oregon government was Norma Paulus, a Republican secretary of state. The Rajneeshis were trying to play fast and loose with election law. Kind of. They were actually following the law. But Norma was the face of all that. Sometimes there were education things. And so Vern Duncan, the elected superintendent of public instruction, was the face that was going on. Vic did not want to give the Rajneeshis any satisfaction of dealing with him ever. And, and, so, and, and Fronmeyer was involved too, right? As a, Fronmeyer was involved, exactly. Fronmeyer and, and several of them, then the Rajneeshis, there were murder plots against them, right. just all sorts of things. This, and eventually biological warfare. This is just nuts. It gets weird, yeah. It gets really weird. Vic by the end of 1981, had given explicit orders to the Oregon State Police infiltrate that place. And so what does that, what does that mean? There. What does that mean, infiltrate? That means have people dress up like they're joining your cult and have them go live on the ranch. No kidding. Does yeah. he do that with a with like a writ anything written, or does he just tell them that? It's told. And so oh, I have wow. this from the memories of the people who were in the meetings. But nothing's oh. written down. 
and from there, this cloak and dagger stuff is just stunning. <laughs> no kidding. There's, there's a crucial meeting between, and, and how important it was it? Jerry Thompson, his second chief of staff, and the one who was there the longest. Jerry Thompson, even when Vic is being Traeger Vic, she and Vic are never traveling together because one of them has to be in Salem to deal with the Rajneeshis. Holy cow. It's that serious. And when he's traveling, they're with the State Department and secret lines and speaking in code and all this kind of stuff to, if anything pops up, while Vic is out of town in Syria or wherever he happened to be. So really stunning. Yes. In one one particular case, there was... I'm sorry, that's my Siri. Just thinks that I... (laughs) (laughs) It's Syria. (laughs) Exactly. Buddy, you can edit edit that out if you want to. I, I think it's, a lot I of think color. it stays in. It stays in. <laughs> That's great. There was actually a meeting between Sheila, who was the head person of the Rajneeshis mm-hmm. after the Bhagwan, and Jerry Thompson. It's at night in the Portland building that the state owns in downtown Portland. I the date is not sure, but I looked at weather things. I think I have the date pegged down. They're taking Jerry to the to the meeting. Who's driving the car? The chief of the state police. Who wow. else is in there? The adjutant general of the Oregon National Guard. Wow. This is high-level stuff. They pull out of the garage in Salem to head to Portland, and this bum comes up, and the state police guy rolls down his window and says, you know, here, you know, here's some money or something, and rolls the window up, and Jerry's you know, the pulls a window up there, heading up, says, Jerry says, why did you stop for that guy? I was getting the latest direct report from Rajneesh Puram. <laughs> it was one of the undercover guys. Are it you was, serious? Yes, I'm totally serious. <laughs> oh my so God. they go up, they have this meeting, and the meeting does not go well. Sheila had a mouth on her, and uh, Jerry said, so here are the rules. You can't swear, you can't yell or anything like that. And within just a few seconds, she swears and yells, and Jerry just slams her hand down, and, and the meeting's over. And she always wondered, did I do the right thing? So she's doing that. I have interviewed Vic about this, not about that meeting, but about this time. Vic is absolutely convinced that that's when the Rajneeshis learned that they weren't going to get what they wanted from the state of Oregon, and they began to work for what's our exit plan. Hmm. And, and so that kind of stuff's going to be in the book. And it's like, you're kidding me. <laughs> that is crazy. So, so w- I think I know the answer to this, but why is it, why is it such a big deal to the governor? What are they scared of? What are they worried about? Why is this sort of dictating? I mean, there's a lot of things the governor has to manage and worry about. What is the fear? Or is it just the media attention is so bright that they know that all eyes are on them? Is it they're worried about the health of the local population? Like, what is driving the level of engagement from the highest highest level of Oregon government? Fear that non-Rajneeshi Oregonians are going to do something rash and go attack these people. Oh, interesting. Vic, as a Arab of Arab descent, he was very conscious that whatever their weird religion was, they had a total right to practice that religion. He looked at them and said, you know, they're following all the rules. And they were. They had issues. It turns out they didn't know that we had state land use laws. So that was a big problem for them, which they never resolved. But he said, within the the rules, they're following the rules. 
He was also then getting weird pressure from Oregon businesses. Oregon businesses were saying, wow, we're in a big recession. These people are spending money. Keep them here. Hmm. The number one Rolls-Royce dealership in the world at the time was in Portland because they were <laughs> selling Rolls-Royces, the number 75, 80 of them or something. Oh my yeah. And Caterpillar tractors and all sorts of things. Meanwhile, the people of Oregon and the media coverage is, oh my gosh, these people are strange. And then we find out towards the end, oh my gosh, they're using biological warfare against the people of the Dalles. They tried to kill them. Yeah. They, they tried to the kill buffet. them or it was a practice run. We're not sure, but whatever it is, it could have killed people. Lots of people got sick. And, and so there's kind of regular Oregon, get rid of these people. Vic saying they haven't broken any laws. We have to protect them. I'm worried about somebody with a bunch of guns in their pickup truck heading towards the ranch. And so when they finally crossed the line, which he knew by late 82, but putting it together, coordinating federal, local, and state law enforcement was a nightmare, but he made it happen. By the time they figured out, oh, they're running drugs, oh, there's a bunch of people with immigration violations, you know, all sorts of things like that. Then he could say, okay, here are the resources. we got to work on ending this in the best way without bloodshed, basically. I mean, that was their standard. So it was, just, it was just an amazing time. Towards the end, when they knew things were getting crumbly, the Oregon National Guard went on maneuvers just north. And Vic was always proud of it because as long as they were on maneuvers, the federal government was paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> But they were there specifically. So if things fell apart, we had people there who could basically deal with this issue. Reagan, yeah. before you ask the last question, there's this little excerpt from your mini biography of him that says he never met face to face with the representatives of the Rajneeshis, which we talked about. And he always carried an unsigned executive order that would have declared martial law in Wasco and Jefferson counties. What does that mean? <laughs> that means if the proverbial hits the fan, <laughs> he can basically say the governments of these two counties are now run by the state and the state determines what's legal and not. So he can send the troops in, he can send the state police in, he can do all that. It's usually what happens when like uh, New Orleans gets hit by Hurricane Katrina, we declare mm. martial law so nobody can be on the street unless you have permission from the military forces or whatever that's there. So he, he had know? the authority to do that if he wanted to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Do you know how close did it ever get to a place where there was conversations about is it time? Uh, no, it never did. Um, uh, hey, but hey, very ben, few people knew that he had it. Having that drafted is a pretty serious. Yeah, no, that no way. kidding. Like having <laughs> that on you is. is nice. There's just before the last question, there's another one for his overseas trips. Uh -huh. He had something drafted for his chief of staff that nobody else knew about. That when he was in the Middle East, if he was ever kidnapped, there would be no negotiations for his release. Mm. No. Wow. No, we're not paying any money or doing anything. Nobody knew that except her. People didn't find out about it until I started doing the book and they found out about it. Well, <laughs> wow. for our last question, and I appreciate you. You've been very generous, Jim. I encourage everyone when the book comes out, go get it, read it. I will do the same. What do you think Vicatia's legacy and relevance is today beyond semiconductor? I think that's, I mean, I, I was fascinated by that. I didn't quite know that. So I think that that's one relevant piece. Is there anything else? Well, he is famously the last Republican governor. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
as he, he jokingly said, no, no, I'm the latest Republican governor. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want the implication that there would never be any others. Right. And that becomes whatever people want to see in it. The subtleties of whether he was moderate or conservative. When Reagan was elected, everybody referred to him as moderate. And he took on Reagan in the 1982 re-election very publicly. You know, that, that kind of stuff gets lost. Now it's Republicans look out there and say, wow, Vicatia was the last one. That must be the kind of Republican that I am. And they're very different. Very, very, very different. So that that's a, a legacy. Other legacies are things that are kind of baked into Oregon political culture. The kicker is from Vic's time. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, Vic supported the kicker for a long time. In his last days, he came to say, I don't think it's any good anymore. And it wasn't because he didn't like the kicker itself. He thought it had become an entitlement. Oh, interesting. He didn't like entitlements from government. He wanted, you know, it's, it's a remarkable thing for a one-time thing. Great. But don't keep doing it. Mm. Hmm. And so things things like that still exist from when he was there. And he was absolutely crucial to things like the Columbia Gorge, you know, that kind of stuff as well. It turns out his family owned the area that is, oh, I just spaced on it, the area outside of Salem that just got burned in the fire, the horrible Opal Creek. Oh, Creek. That was his father-in-law had all the mining patents there. (laughs) That's where they had the family cabin. And so Vic was involved in those kinds of things in interesting ways. Bob Packwood to this day is still frustrated that Vic called himself an environmentalist. But when you look at Vic, he he was, but not in a Bob Packwood sort of way. Mm. So those kinds of things are there, but you don't see his name on things. That's right. Except for the uh, airport terminal at PDX. That's like the, the one airport terminal. Thing. Yeah. And then there's one on a sign. The uh, lower Deschutes is a public access park. And Vic's name is on one of those signs. And then, of course, in my district, there is the still the Atia Brothers <laughs> uh, rug exactly. store, but not so much a monument. Exactly. To, to <laughs> Jim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast and telling us a little bit about Governor Tia. Last question is, when's the book going to be done? When can we get the book? And uh, what's the best way for people to reach you or learn more about you? Sure. The book is done and it's been edited. I've talked to a couple of publishers and they don't want it. So I'm looking for a publisher. <laughs> So we'll we'll it'll we'll figure it out. I got a, I got a few options there, and that's fine. They wanted a book that I didn't want to publish, and so that's great. You know, we'll we'll work it out. People want to get hold of me? Um, just go to the Pacific University website. I know because when I talk on the radio or television, people are cranky. They can certainly find where I am, <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. And uh, yeah, people want to talk. We can talk. Absolutely. Awesome, Jim. Thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome.